you may not know it, but I'm telling you, what we're doing right now, just pouring out our worship to God, it's what you were made to do. It's what you were made to do. Say, Eric, I can't carry a tune in a bucket. It doesn't matter. It's what we were made to do. Not just with singing, not just with our voices, but man, I am thankful that we get to gather together here this morning and do it with our voices. Amen? Father, I I just, I thank you for calling us to this. Lord, I pray you'd switch it, I pray you'd switch it in our hearts and in our minds, this mindset that worship is, is a means rather than an ends. Change that mindset in us, Lord. That there's nothing beyond this. This is what we were saved for. It's what we were saved to. That we could come and that we could do this. That we could worship you in spirit and in truth. And now on this earth, it's, it's, it's imperfect at times. It's a little bit broken, but someday, perfectly, forever, around your throne, we will worship you. You are always worthy. And you've created us for this purpose. So, Father, I pray that in the days that you give us here on this earth, that we would offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice again and again and again, holy and acceptable to you, that this would be our spiritual act of worship in all that we do, Lord. That it would be an offering, a response, a picture of those words that we just sang. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour it out to you. Thanks for being good, God. We are so thankful to be here today. Please speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a seat. If you've got your Bibles, grab them. Go to Genesis chapter 22. This is actually going to be our last week together studying the life of Abraham. Um, For those of you that have your little uh, bookmarker, let's see if I have mine here, with our little Bible reading plan on it, um, you'll see that next week actually says we had originally planned to go on and look at Genesis 23 and 24 together. However, um, in two weeks we're having one of our missionaries that we support, Q and Anna Kim, who are down in Columbia, South America. Uh, They're going to be sharing with us. And and after the life of Abraham, where our Bible reading plan takes us is into the book of John, which uh, what's called the Upper Room Discourse, which is chapters 13 through 17, and that's going to take us up through Easter. And, and it's just, those chapters are some really, really, really uh, central and foundational um, chapters and the truth that Jesus shares there with his disciples on the night that he's betrayed, and I don't want to miss any of that, and so we're going to jump ahead a week early, um, and of course, feel free to go ahead and read this week, Genesis 23 and 24, if you want to, but next Sunday, I'm going to jump into John chapter 13, and so if you want to be reading that as well, that would be, that would be great. But today, finishing up the life of Abraham, this is uh, definitely kind of like the crescendo, the climax, the high point. Um, of Abraham's kind of story here, and uh, there's so much in here, I'll be honest with you, I just, I don't even know what to do with it all, um, and so I've really struggled to uh, get a coherent outline of some sort this week in regards to preaching this, but uh, let's just jump in and read, and we'll talk about a couple things, but Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. 
He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering to the one on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for I know Now that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks again for your day today. Thanks, thanks for your word. Um, please bless it with your power and with your presence of your Holy Spirit this morning as we talk about it. Please change our hearts. Give us hearts that are soft, that are able to receive the seed of your word, Lord, my own included, um, and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys know what I mean when I say photobomb? You know what I mean? Have you ever photobombed somebody? Photobomb is, for those of you who don't know, it's like somebody's posing to take a picture or whatever, um, and you either, I don't know, sometimes the real, the real, I don't know, the hardcore photobombs, I guess, or where you kind of like jump in front of them or something as they're uh, getting ready to take the picture. Uh, but there's another type, and it's more of my personal favorite, is where you just kind of sneakily go into the background, like behind them, and you just kind of peek out, I don't know, found a bush or something. Back in the day, there were these things, uh, I was just thinking about this this morning, how, how far we've come, but do you guys remember the disposable camera? Yes? Remember this? So, 
All the young people were like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Let me try to explain. There was this thing called the disposable camera, okay? There was a day, believe it or not, where not everybody had a, a, a camera in their pocket on their phone, okay? And there was this thing called the disposable camera, and you would, you would buy it, and, and um, it was like, I don't know, it was a camera and the film all in one thing, and so you, you usually got like maybe like 24 pictures or something like that, and you would, uh, you would take it, and then uh, you'd take the picture, and you'd remember how you'd have to roll that thing, you know? onto the next thing. Then you'd have to, and, and believe it or not, you couldn't see the picture. Like, you didn't know if it was a good one or not, right? So you're just like, man, I hope. I hope that that, I hope that, that worked out. And then you'd go, and you'd have to take it to, like, the pharmacy or the Walmart or something, and they would, they would uh, develop the film, and then you'd eventually get them back. Um, do you remember those days? Praise man. Not that long ago. Well, I, I remember back, like, when... Oh man, it was, it was early 2000s, like right when Hannah and I were maybe just engaged, not married, and then early on when we first got married, we used to help at a lot of, uh, at a lot of uh, like summer camps, Bible memory camp, things like that, as counselors, and it, some of the guys I used to travel with, used to, you know, we used to speak at those things and stuff. And one of the things that brought us great joy was to, at, at the end of camp or whatever, you know, all the kids had been together for a week or a couple days, and they'd all be taking pictures together, is we used to go around, and we used to, I don't, it wasn't called this back then, we just did it, but, but we would basically photobomb people. And it would, we would never jump in front, because, you know, you didn't, you didn't want them to know that you were ruining their picture, because they only had so many, right? They only had, like, 24, so I'm like, well, I'll just take another one. That's not, you only had a limited amount. And so, but it used to bring us great joy to think about um, like all these kids later on when they would get their pictures developed, <laughs> that we'd be like peeking out from behind a tree in the background or something or, or like, you know, hiding behind, coming out from behind a bench or something in their, in their, in their picture. And you're like, that's very immature of you. I, I know, I understand. I understand that. This is an illustration slash confession for me this morning. But so I say all that because it's kind of an illustration of what we see, although a silly one, albeit, of, of the text this morning, is you have, you have two pictures in this text. The, the first picture is a straightforward picture. It's a portrait of Abraham. And at this point in his life, um, this is really the, as I said already, kind of the crescendo or the climax of his life. And you see a portrait of what it looks like to have a mature faith, a mature faith in God. And that's one of the pictures I want to look at this morning. But there's another picture and it's a little bit more in the background. However, this one is, is, not, is not so subtle. And, and it's, it's this idea of typology. And you've heard me talk about this before, is that typology is like a special type of symbolism that you find in the Bible. Uh, and it's, it's kind of the idea of a prophetic symbol, primarily in the Old Testament, where you see different scenarios, situations, or people that um, are a type of Christ, or a, a, a pointer to a pointer to Christ, and um, and so you've got you know you've got the high priest in the Old Testament. As Mark read this morning, Jesus is our better high priest. You've got the sacrifice, the Old Testament system. Jesus is the the better lamb, and we see some of that here this morning too. But probably out of all the types in the Old Testament, there's no type that is more uh, that is more pointed. That you know, it's really not a sneaky photo bomb. It's it, there's the picture of Abraham, but there's another picture right there in the background. It's really the picture that God wants us to see, and it's the picture of Christ in all of this. 
And so what I want to talk about this morning are kind of these, these, these two lanes and then also talk about how they kind of come together is, are, are these ideas of typology and maturity. Typology and maturity. That there's a maturity that we see in Abraham that I think um, the text calls us to learn some things from, but there's also this typology of pointing to Christ. And the reason that typology is, is important or is helpful for us is that Again, it's going to point to Jesus and what he did when he, when he came the first time, but this is written thousands of years beforehand. And, and so what it tells us is that God has always had a plan. He's always had a plan. And this plan has always been about glorifying uh, his son. And, and typology teaches us what is important to the heart of God because God, God's, God's plans and his purposes and what's important to him, they do not change. They're the same. And the more that we can rightly understand what is important to God, the more we should be able to rightly understand what is important to us, right? So we want to value what God values. And one of the ways you can see what God values is, well, what has he just valued throughout history? What has never, what has never changed? What has it always been about for God? So we want to ask, well, what's it all about for us? Like, what, what, you know, What's the purpose of, of my life? And we want to make it all about us. But what's, what's on God's heart? Well, that doesn't really change. It's always, been, it's always been the same. And so those are the two things I want to talk about, typology and maturity. And actually, I want to do the, some of the typology first. There, there's a whole bunch in here, but this is what it's always been about. Okay, it's kind of the way I want to frame this. Number one, uh, as, as you might have guessed, this might be kind of a Captain Obvious type thing, but, but it's here and it's beautiful, and it's not just in this passage, but all over. But number one, it's always been about Jesus. It has always been about Jesus. Isaac is a type of Christ. It's a prophetic picture pointing to Christ. Isaac was the child of promise. Sarah was barren, as we've looked at over the last several weeks together. Mary wasn't just barren, she was a virgin. Both of their births were prophesied or spoken by God before they ever happened. Came to Sarah, said, you'll have a son, name him Isaac. Came to Mary, said, you'll have a son, name him Jesus. You'll notice here, probably most pointedly, it's three times in the text, but especially in verse 2. It's in verse 2, 12, and 16. But in verse 2, he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now that word only, um, again, if, if you're a student of the word and have been following this, uh, Abraham's life as we've been studying this together over the last couple months is that, is that it, Isaac wasn't actually Abraham's only son. He, he also had Ishmael. However, the word for only here, it, it's not just only as in like the only one. It's the idea of unique, of uniqueness, okay? And again, this is the same, this is the same idea when we speak of Jesus as being the only begotten son. Jesus was not created. He was the creator along with the Father and the Spirit. Um, but Jesus is the unique Son of God. And again, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but in verse 2, this is again that, that little law of first mentioned. This is the first place in the Bible that you have the word love mentioned. And he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Again, down in verse uh, 12, he says that you've not withhold from me your son, your only son, your unique son. He says it again in verse 16. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, is that it's pointing forward to how God is going to send his 
one and only son. Both of them were perfectly obedient to the father. Now, again, Isaac was a sinner. Abraham was a sinner, just like you and I. However, in this passage, you see a a, a little snapshot of some perfect obedience by the son Isaac to the father Abraham. Is that they're going along and and it, three different times also in the passage, you'll see in verse, in verse 6, I believe it's verse 8, and also in verse 19, it says, and so they arose and they went together, and they went together, and they went together. Is that even though the father here is going to bind his son, and we'll talk about that in just a second, and tie him up on the altar, Isaac is perfectly obedient. Jesus was perfectly obedient to the will of the father. On the night that he was betrayed, in Matthew chapter 26 says that Jesus, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup, this cup of suffering that he was about to partake of, let this cup pass from me, yet nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, just as Isaac was the son that his father loved at Jesus' baptism, God shows up, the the heavens are torn apart, Mark says, and a voice comes from heaven, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It has always been about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. Thousands of years, this is roughly 2,000 years before Jesus came, it was always about Jesus. Folks, God is not working a plan B. Do you know that? He's not working a plan B. It's always been about Jesus. Says that he was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. It's always been about Jesus. And again, we see this. Like, why did God put this in here? Why is this in here a thousand years? Two thousand years, I'm sorry, before Jesus is ever gonna come, because he's trying to communicate to us. This is what's important. It's about my son. It's about his perfect obedience. It's about his righteousness. It's always been about Jesus. Secondly, it's always been about the cross. It's always been about the cross. You'll see here in Isaac's obedience how it it, it mirrors what Jesus did, is that he carries his own wood. You'll remember when Jesus is going to Calvary, John chapter 19, it says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now there's more of that story. They eventually find a man named Simon of Cyrene who comes and helps him carry that because he was so beaten beyond recognition, the Bible says. And here in verse 6 it says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and so both of them went on together. And here's this, here's this picture, this type of how Jesus is going to carry the cross to die for our sins one day, and we see Isaac, thousands of years earlier, carrying the cross, and, or, or carrying, carrying the wood, just like Jesus did. But not only that, but there's also something really neat here, and again, guys, God is, God is detailed. He's so detailed. And he's screaming throughout the Bible that it is all about his son Jesus, and it's all about the cross. But where God has them go, Mount Moriah, okay, to the land of Moriah, Okay, and they see and they see this mountain. This is in the exact same spot that Solomon would later on build the temple in Jerusalem. This is before 
the full city of Jerusalem existed. But this is in the exact same spot. In 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, when Solomon's building the temple, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to his father David. So again, David is going to come about about a thousand, or Solomon's going to come about about a thousand years after this. But here you've got a thousand years ahead of time. God says, I want you to go to this land of Moriah, to this specific mountain. A thousand years later, Solomon is going, to be, is going to build the temple there. For a thousand years, there are going to be sacrifices offered again and again and again on this same mountain where Abraham offered up his son. And then, a thousand years after that, Jesus is going to come as that better sacrifice, but all the same mountain in the same, the same vicinity in and around Jerusalem. God has always had a plan. It's always been about Jesus and it's always been about the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, And when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you testimony, uh, the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but, on the, but in the power of God. That's one of the problems with our Christianity today, one of the problems with our faith, is that we've taken the cross out of it, and we've not made it all about Jesus, we've not made it all about the cross, and so our faith stumbles, and our faith at times is weak. But it's always been about Jesus, and it's always been about the cross. Third, it's always been about substitution. We've talked about this before in the last couple months, for those of you that call Mercy Hill home, we've hit this in several different places, but uh, most primarily in Isaiah 53, as we were there uh, last fall and talked about that. But it's always been about substitution. As the story goes on here, Abraham is right at the place of going through with this obedience to the Father, and he raises up the knife to kill him, and the angel shouts from heaven again. He says, Abraham, Abraham, and he says, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do any harm to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. We'll talk more about why God did all this after a little bit. But then in verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Substitution. Substitution. Why did God not have Abraham follow through, the, through with this? Because it wouldn't have done any good. It was ultimately about, ultimately about the substitution that Jesus needed to make, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. But again, notice this has always been part of God's plan. It's always been about Jesus, it's always been about the cross, and it's always been about substitution. Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is that Jesus came and he died once as our substitute on the cross, but now we are to live this type of substituted life as well. Where it's not us who lives, it's Christ who lives in us. The people of God have to understand substitution. And that Jesus came and he died once for all so that those who live might now forever live for him. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's us. 
so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith is that Christ became a curse for us. That apart from Christ, every human being that has ever been born is under a curse. It is the curse of sin. God's wrath is against us. God's wrath is not, understand this, God's wrath is not against you if you just reject the gospel. If you don't know Jesus, God's wrath is against you already. And Jesus came to save us from that wrath. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is that we are by nature objects of wrath. The wrath of God is against us. We are under a curse. But Jesus came and died in our place. And to all who will receive him, to those who believe in his name, he takes you from being cursed, from being under his wrath, and he makes you a child of God. There could, there's no better deal. There's no better deal in all the universe than that. For all who will simply call upon his name because he was our substitute. Now every day we're to live our life in the power of his spirit, his life, being the substitute for our life and the way that we live each and every day. It's always been about Jesus. It's always been about the cross. It's always been about substitution. And it's always been about the resurrection. It's always been about the resurrection. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, um, the writer of Hebrews is giving commentary of people throughout history who have lived a faithful life, not a perfect life, but a faithful life of faith and obedience to God. And of course, Abraham is mentioned there. Abraham gets the most press um, out of all the people in the Old Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. He's, of course, the father of our faith. So we've talked about many times over the last several weeks, but in Hebrews, tra- Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, just like we just read about, that he raises the knife, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, now again, we'll, we'll talk more about this, but like, th- this didn't make any sense. God had promised Abraham that he was finally going to have this son, him and Sarah. He finally came and he said, through Isaac, your offspring are going to be named. And so why was you know, Abraham going through with all this? Well, because God told him. But here's what he considered. Verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. If you'll notice, again, there's so many little beautiful details in Genesis chapter 22. But in 22 verse 4, as they're approaching the mountain, as they're approaching the hill to which God was calling them to to perform this sacrifice, it says, on the third day, isn't that awesome? On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And it was on that same third day that they would go there and that they would do this and, and Figuratively speaking, on the third day, Abraham received his son Isaac back from the dead. And it was on the third day, after not just being figuratively killed, but being literally killed, laying down his life, that Jesus rose from the grave. (laughs) 2,000 years before it ever happened, it's always been about Jesus It's always been about the cross, it's always been about substitution, and it's always been about the resurrection. So here's a real simple question. Is that what it's all about in your life? Or is it about other stuff? Do we value what God values? Do we prioritize 
what God prioritizes. Um, this is, again, a very pointed picture. There, there's many other parallels with Isaac. Those are just a few. Always been about Jesus, always been about the cross, always been about substitution, and it's always been about the resurrection. And I think just, just one takeaway before I kind of move to talking about Abraham and, and his life of maturity that we see. Um, you know, as you think about Abraham's life, you have to think about journeying and wandering. And not wandering in a bad way, but, you know, when, when back in chapter 12, if you remember, when God first calls him to go, he, he, get, he says, get up and go to the land that I will show you. So th- there's, this, there's this journeying, wandering, a little bit of uncertainty at times that marks Abraham's life, and that is, is to help us understand that this is part of the life of discipleship in following Christ, as we don't always know perfectly where we're going. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 4, um, I don't know that I've mentioned this. I think I might have mentioned this several weeks ago. But again, in referencing Abraham, uh, it says that he, being Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but listen, it says, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. I like that little phrase is that one of the, the way Paul there, the writer of Romans, describes us is that we are to be those who walk in the footsteps of the faith. Not just have the faith, but walk in the footsteps of the faith. And it doesn't mean that we need to literally go to the, 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 the physical, geopolitical place in Israel and walk the exact path that Abraham walked, but we're to live lives that are like this, that we're actually living by faith. Again, we don't have time to go into all this, but in James chapter 2, James uses the illustration of Abraham, saying that faith without works is dead. you got to get up. you got to follow. you got to go. And that doesn't justify you, but it is the proof of your faith. Um. But, but in all of that, in, in all the journeying, in all the wondering that we do as we try to follow Jesus, here's what we can know, is that time and time again, as Christians, in all of our journeying and trying to follow Jesus as best we can, we are always going to find ourselves back at the cross. Always going to find ourselves back at the cross. We're always going to find ourselves back at the feet of Jesus. We're always going to find ourselves being reminded by God through his word and through his Holy Spirit, that it's all about substitution. And we're going to find ourselves again and again being reminded that it's all about the resurrection. That no matter what trials or tribulations come at us in this, light, in, in this life, they are light and momentary afflictions which are working for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Paul says that if the resurrection is not true, then he above all people is to be pitied the most. But the resurrection is true. Because it's always been about Jesus and the cross and substitution and the resurrection. And I say that because the reason that, that practically matters is, is if you just think about your life right now. I wouldn't doubt at all. I mean, we, we go through seasons like this all the time. In fact, it might be true of us all the time. There might, in other words, there, there might never be a moment that it isn't true. And, but but it, it's, it's this. Is that how many of you aren't really sure what God's doing in your life right now? Anybody? 
I find myself there like, I don't, I, huh. I'm wandering around and I don't really understand. Well, here's one of the things, and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but here's one of the things I know that he's doing in your life if you've trusted Jesus as Savior, if you're his disciple, if you're trying to follow him. He's leading you to the cross. He's leading you to the feet of Jesus. He's going to remind you that his substitution, his provision is enough. And he wants to remind you that it's not about this life, it's about a resurrected life. It's coming someday. And again, I don't know exactly what he's doing, but in everything that he does in our lives, that's one of the things he's doing. Amen? And so that's good news because you can trust that this morning. I I want you to, again, I'm not just trying to just wax eloquent up here about something that doesn't matter, like, like this matters. I want you to lean into that in your faith, in your devotional life, in your, in your time with God. Saying, God, I, I, it doesn't make sense. This hurts. I'm confused. I don't, I don't really get it. But I know you want to lead me to the cross. I know you want to lead me to the feet of Jesus. And I know you want me to experience your resurrection power in this life. So let that be an encouragement to you. Um, so I want to transition from kind of the, the picture in the background, if you will, of Christ, the beautiful, divinely inspired, prophetic photobomb, if you will, to now this image that's in the, in the forefront of, of Abraham and this picture of maturity that we see in him. Abraham has not lived a perfect life, amen? So we've studied his life. It's not been perfect. It's been far from it, actually. Uh, and so we don't see a perfect man here, but we do see a mature man. We see a man who has a mature faith. And there are three things that mark, that mark his life and, some, and, and that he came to understand, and, and one of them especially, I, I really think we miss this. But one is this, is that in all of his journeyings and wanderings relationship with God, he came to the place where he understood this is what it was about. Ready? Number one, it was about obedience. It was about obedience. God says to him, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men and with him his son Isaac. Now I don't know about you, but if I get that word from the Lord, I'm going to pray about it. Right? I'm going to pray about that for a week. Abraham obeys. And again, it's not a sluggish, half-hearted obedience. It's a ready obedience. Okay? Um, again, it's like I can't, I got to get through a sermon one of these days without using my boys as an illustration. But, I, you know, go clean your room. Go take out the trash. I will. Oh, I know you will. <laughs> but, but I want you to do it now. Right? God's not looking for like a half-hearted, sluggish obedience. His mature faith is shown in ready obedience, right? So Abraham gets up and he does this. Again, hear me here. I, I, I've, I've said this before, but it's, we, we have weird, um, we believe lies in our minds. We, don't, we need to rightly divide the word of truth. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience is just simply obedience, Right? Abraham's not responding here to gain anything from God. He's doing this, um, and this kind of leads into the second point, is Abraham knew it was all about worship. 
He knew that it was all about worship. Notice, notice what he says in verse 5. After he lifts up his eyes and he sees the place from afar, it says, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. I don't think Abraham, or I don't think he always understood that this is what it was all about, but he came to the place in his life, and this is one of the marks of a mature faith, is he understood it was all about obedience, and he understood that it was all about worship. And just like I said earlier, did I, yeah, I think that was, yeah, I prayed that earlier, I think, when I first walked up here, is that, guys, obedience is, or I'm sorry, worship is not a means, it is an end's. All of life is about worship. Here, here's what I mean, is that we, we think that we know what the answer is in our life, and so we kind of play these little games, and, and this kind of, again, might be a little bit cynical, but I think all of our hearts have been there at times, even as Christians, is that we, we have an answer of something we want God to do, and so we kind of play this little game where we think we can manipulate him, and we're like, I'm going to worship. I'm going to spend a little extra time in my devotions or in prayer or maybe you know, listen to worship music or singing to you or, or, or whatever. But we're, we're viewing those things as a means to just get what we want. Okay? Worship is not a means. It's an ends. All of life is about worship. And I'm telling you, this, this, I found this to be very, very helpful in my practical obedience. There's a way, and I'll talk about this, about how all these things kind of, kind of coincide together. And, to, and come together to, to work um, maturity in our life is that we, we think that, like, stop thinking that your obedience is just about practical results, right? We always go, okay, well, if I, if I do this, if I put this into the vending machine and I put in 50 cents or a dollar or whatever, nothing's 50 cents anymore, never mind, a dollar, dollar 50, and then I push the buttons and I, I enter that code, then I get my Snickers bar or, you know, bag of chips or whatever, it's not, it's not about that. It's not about just getting results. It's about worship. When God calls you to do something, when he calls you to obey, when he's laying something on your heart to go have a conversation with somebody or to ask for forgiveness or to confront somebody in their sin or to begin to really pray for somebody regularly, it's not just about results. It's about worship in that moment is that what you're doing is you're offering up your life again to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, which is your spiritual act of worship. Abraham knew that whatever God was doing in all this and calling him to offer up his son, that it was about worship. He says, we'll, we'll go over and we'll worship. We'll come back. So a mature faith, it's about obedience. It's about worship. But then thirdly, and this is the one that I want to spend a little bit of time on because I'm convinced we miss it so much, Three, he knew that it was about provision. It's about obedience, worship, and provision. The other thing that Abraham says here as he's journeying to the mountain that God was taking him to is Isaac asks him, Behold, verse 7, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went on together. Now this is, this is important, okay? Is because many times this text is used to talk about how our worship has to be costly and we have to be sacrificial in it. Now hear me, partly, partly, 
But let's talk here about, because again, this, this passage is actually one of the things that skeptics and critics of the Bible, and sometimes even Christians, we, we struggle with. Why, why would God tell Abraham to offer up his son? That's grotesque and weird, and for those of us that have kids, like we don't get what well, you're missing it. Notice, he, yes, he asks him to do this, and it's a picture for us, but he doesn't ask him to go through with it. What, what he's showing is that he's not like these other false gods, these other false religions. Like one of the first things that God tells the nation of Israel um, as he, when he brings them out of um, Egypt to Mount Sinai is, is that they will not offer child sacrifices like many of the nations around them because that was evil and that was wicked. And so the, the point here is, is that, yes, God wanted Abraham to offer up that which was most valuable to him, but not because God needed it, but because he wanted Abraham to walk with him empty-handed so that he would be able to receive all that he had for him. And here's the point, is that worship is not about what we give God, but it is about our response to what he has given us. Are you hearing me? you got to get this. And I'll, I'll unpack this a little bit more. Worship is not about what we give to God, but it is about our response to what he has given to us. And again, Abraham is ready to go through with this, but he knows at this place in his walk with God now that it is about the Lord's provision. You think about Abraham's life and the places where he messed up when, you know, two different times with Pharaoh and later on with Abimelech where he lied and said that his sister or that his wife was his sister. He was not trusting in the Lord's provision. When, when you know, they messed up with Hagar and birthed Ishmael, they were not trusting in the Lord's provision. But at this point in his life, he understands that God doesn't need him to do anything. God doesn't need what he brings him. But worship is truly about his response to what God has provided. And that's what we see in this picture. Now, put, put that little graphic up there, Josh, if I can. Um, this was kind of just, this was the way I was kind of picturing this all week. I showed this with the interns on Friday. I was like, I, I feel like I just can't get this little Venn diagram out of my mind. And so I drew it on the whiteboard. And then Matt Miller, free plug for Veritas Creative, um, if you ever need any graphic design work done. Um, Matt, like, literally, like, while I was drawing it out on the whiteboard, he had this done on his phone already and somehow threw it. Anyway, but, but here's kind of how I picture this. Is these three things, these three marks of maturity, is that obedience, worship, and provision. And, and here's, here's the thing that I want to press on a little bit because I think it's practically applicable to our lives and where we live, is I think we get obedience and I think we might even get worship. But we don't get provision. We don't understand, and this is where faith comes in, is that Abraham was trusting that God was going to provide what was ultimately needed. And so when you just have obedience, and then if you get the worship circle, the worship one right, here's what it produces. It produces legalism. Because we become very impressed with ourselves as to over the years, the ways that we've obeyed and the ways that we've sacrificed and we've done it as to worship unto God. God doesn't need what we bring, folks. He provided what we need. He provided Jesus. And not only did he provide Jesus at the cross as the ultimate substitute, as the ultimate provision, but this is the way he wants us to live our lives, by trusting in faith in future grace. By the way, a little side note here. You guys know one of my favorite Author, speakers, pastors, theologians is John Piper. He's written a bunch of books. One of my favorite books of his, however, it's not very 
popular with the masses, is called Future Grace. In fact, I, th- I believe the full title is Living by Faith in Future Grace. And if I, it's a thick book, but let me just sum it up for you. The book is primarily about is how we are to live our lives daily as Christians, trusting in the Lord's future provision, not just someday when he comes back. Yes, that's included. But trusting in the Lord's provision in like the next five minutes as we go into that tense meeting or as we're facing that temptation. Lord, I need you. I need the provision of your power and of the presence of your Holy Spirit to lead me not into temptation, but to deliver me from evil is that this is how we live a life of obedience and worship and that ultimately look like maturity, is that when we understand that it's not about what we bring to God, but it's about what he's brought for us. And he always has the answer. Whether it's in Christ or whether it's some, you know, years from now when he comes back or when we die or when we're laying on our deathbed or whether it's in five minutes or five seconds from now. We are constantly to be looking for the Lord's provision in order for us to live a life of godliness. Are you following me? Are you with me? Here, here's, why this, here's, here's why this matters practically is because um, how many of you in the snow this past year, you, ha- you only had a two-wheel drive vehicle? Anybody? Okay. And you're just, in the name of Jesus, Lord, keep me safe. I'm going, you know, you're just praying. And, that, and that's good. Two-wheel drive can be good. Makes you pray more in the snow. But, but here's how most Christians live their life, is, is, is I believe that God's called us to embrace all that he is and all that he's provided for us. And most of us have a, a two-wheel, and not just two-wheel, but rear-wheel drive, rear-wheel drive car. And we just don't get around very good. And what I mean is, is we, we, the two wheels that drive us forward, and these are good, we need these, but is, is, us, is, is thankfulness. I would call those wheels thankfulness. The rear-wheel drive, two-wheel drive car, is th- we look back at what Christ has done and, and we go, okay, look at all he's done. I know that I need to go forward in obedience. But we hit difficult times and we hit trials and we hit tribulations and tests because God tests his people as we see here. He's doing with Abraham. And what we need are those front wheels. And those front wheels that gives us then for- the rear wheel and the back wheels. Are- the rear wheels look back in thankfulness of what he's done, but the front wheels pull us forward and the front wheels are faith in his future provision for what he will provide. He said, God, I'm thankful for all that you've done, and I want to obey you. We live grace-driven lives, okay? But, Lord, I need you again to provide for me what I cannot provide for myself. And it's when we get both the back wheels and the front wheels trusting in God's future provision going for us that we really begin to go forward without slipping and sliding or ending up in the ditch of our Christian Christian life. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to, out in front, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. That our faith is not just fixed on what he has done, but our faith should be fixed on what he will do. 
This is, this is maturity. Obedience, worship, and the Lord's provision. Worship team, you can come up and we're going to close. A couple things as we close. Number one, Mercy Hill Church, let's never forget what it's all about. Let's never forget what it's always been about. It's about Jesus. It's about the cross. It's about substitution. And it's about the resurrection. The hope of eternal life that we have in him. Secondly, if you are facing a situation in your life where you might be just as confused as Abraham was on some level when God asked him to offer up his son, I want you to remember these three things we just talked about. That even if you don't understand, I want you to obey for whatever that looks like. Secondly, remember that that obedience it's not just about seeing a result. It's about worship. Do it with joy. Say, God, I don't understand this, but here I go, and this is for you. Because my life belongs to you, and I'm just trying to please you. And I'm just trying to offer my body to you. And then third, remember that it's about his provision. That there's a very real sense, folks, in light of all that Christ has ever done for us, um, that there's a sense in which Christians, we really don't make sacrifices. Not in light of his sacrifice. Not in light of all that he's done. And hear me, I, I, I know that things are hard and there, there is a level on which we do make sacrifices and it's difficult. And, and, that, and that's part of it. That's part of it. But when you view that in light of the cross, when you view that in light of what Jesus did, when you view that in light of him taking upon himself as the innocent lamb, the punishment that we deserve. I, I, we never make a sacrifice. And even where we do, it's just all about worship. And I pray that as we close here and, and, as, and as we sing, that we could just together kind of have a renewed um, commitment to just living our lives every day as a fragrant offering of worship to him. Guys, he's good, and he's got you. And he's going to provide. I don't know what that will look like. It might be deliverance. It might be endurance. But he's faithful. Lord, thanks for today. Thank you for your love for us. God, I pray that you would work in us as individuals and as a people, as a local church. I pray that you would work in us this type of maturity that readily obeys, um, that knows it's all about worship continually, and that trusts in your provision. Jesus, I pray that not just buried in our closet somewhere or hidden down in a dark little corner of our basement, but that over the the header, the gateway of our homes, of our lives, would be the name of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, 
the substitution of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. I pray that these things would mark us and that people would know, that a watching world would know that this is what it's about. We love you, Father. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys stand with me.